2016 U.S. News and World Report study concluded that the United States was among the most depressed countries in the world. Uh, Not talking about economic depression, but soul depression, right? Uh, We could look at a lot of different articles that suggest similar themes. Uh, I realize that statistics can be a little bit misleading. The U.S. would certainly have more verified cases of clinical depression and childhood depression and anxiety than most African countries because they don't track such things in many parts of the world. Uh, But I think we could say, uh, even just anecdotally, that all of our affluence as a country has not brought about the happiness and fulfillment and joy that we might expect. We are a culture that's really bent on entertainment and recreation. We are looking for joy. And we oftentimes find it to be elusive. Philippians is a letter that is focused on that theme of joy and helps us understand where and how it is to be found. So uh, we're excited to be able to turn our attention there. We are continuing in our study on Route 66, Road Trip Through the Bible, looking at the 66 books of the Bible in one calendar year. That means 66 books in 52 weeks. So we are doing big picture overview. Uh, We're going to be looking at the entirety of the book of Philippians today, albeit an overview, and uh, really tracing out the themes. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote a number of letters to uh, the early church. I'm not sure I've got control of that, Chris. You might need to advance that for me if you could. He wrote a number of letters to the early church, uh, helping them to properly understand the gospel, to safeguard the gospel from false teaching, and to uh, help them understand how to live and conduct themselves in light of the gospel. So we've been looking through a number of Paul's letters, and we've been suggesting that behind each of these letters there is a backstory, there is a narrative so where the little blue section on the bottom shelf there uh, are all the collection of Paul's letters written to the early church. Uh, and again, behind each of them is a backstory. Uh, so I might, thought it might be helpful just to, to kind of think through. We've already considered several of them, but just to kind of tease this out a little bit. I, I would suggest that maybe Rome and, and Paul's letter to the Roman church, right? Rome is like Washington, D.C., the political and governmental headquarters of the ancient world, the Roman Empire. Uh, Corinth was like Las Vegas, known for immorality. Galatia, not a town but a region, was like Texas. Kind of rough and tumble, a bit volatile, fierce passion. This was the Galatians. Ephesus Second largest city uh, in the ancient world was, uh, was, uh, had a very strong sense of regional pride. I think of Chicago. There's some ethnic aspects to that big city that are very pronounced, and they take great pride in that. 
even turning the river green, right, at different times of the year. Ephesus had some of those types of things going on. So uh, I, I just say all that to just, again, these are real people, and these are real places, okay? So what do we know about Philippi and the church here in this city? Uh, Philippi was one of the primary cities of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Uh, the city was named after Philip II of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. As a Roman colony, it was a popular destination for retired Roman soldiers. It enjoyed certain privileges and tax benefits. And it was on the Via Ignatia, which was the main east-west highway that connected Rome to Asia. And so, again, Philippi was a place of great influence. The church in Philippi was the first church established in Europe, so it has that mark of distinction. Matter of fact, Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey and established churches in what was called Asia Minor, that part of Asia that was almost to Europe. And then Paul and Barnabas went back on a second missionary journey. They revisited those churches, they did some more teaching, and then they kind of wondered, where do we go from here? And God directed them into Macedonia, into Europe. So this is a key a threshold in the outward movement of the gospel. We are told about uh, of three of the first converts there in Philippi. Lydia, the seller of purple, um, a young demon-possessed slave girl, and the city's jailer. Again, you can read about all of this in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul would usually go to the Jewish synagogue when he arrived in a city, uh, he knew that people at least had a basic familiarity with what we call the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. But there was no synagogue, no Jewish synagogue in Philippi. That meant that there were fewer than 10 Jewish men in the city. You had to have at least 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. So Paul ended up connecting with a, a small group of people outside the city along the river, predominantly women. Lydia was one of those women. She was a successful businesswoman, entrepreneurial. Uh, she was a seller of purple, which was a very valuable, uh, hard-to-procure dye. So it was reserved for royalty in the ancient world. So she's, she's, she's doing well for herself. Uh, she had actually relocated to Philippi to set up her business there. But apparently her success in business had not satisfied her soul, right? When Paul shared with uh, the, the people on the riverside about Jesus, Lydia believed. And she and her whole household were baptized and made a commitment to Christ. And their conversion was genuine. Uh, matter of fact, Lydia began to generously use her resources to support uh, this new church. She opened up her home, uh, seemingly a, a large enough meeting space to accommodate uh, this new group of believers. And so uh, she was used in a, in a tremendous way there at the outset of the church. And then Paul heals a young slave girl who was possessed by a demon. Her masters had been using this girl to tell fortunes, right? Taking advantage of her demon possession, and when Paul healed her, they were so enraged that they had Paul cast in prison. And of course, that's where Paul came into contact with the Philippian jailer, who would be the next uh, convert to Jesus Christ. 
So we see the, the beginnings of this church. Again, exciting, uncharted territory in Europe where the gospel began to take hold. Uh, Paul would also stop in Philippi during his third missionary journey. So the church was established on his second missionary journey, but he went back again and stayed there briefly uh, on his third journey. So he had an ongoing relationship with these believers. When the church in Philippi heard that Paul was imprisoned in Rome, they sent Epaphroditus with a monetary gift. So Paul, again, is imprisoned at this point. He makes reference to it here in Philippians. Uh, This is one of what is called his prison epistles or his prison letters. But when the church in Philippi heard about this, they sent a messenger with a financial gift. Different sort of uh, setup there. You would have to, uh, Paul was under what would be more considered like house arrest. So he wasn't in some grimy, dark dungeon, but he was restricted in his movements. And you would have to provide for yourself, your own lodging, your own food. And uh, if you've been to the hospital, I've been to the hospital in Togo, West Africa there with our, our missionary partners, and uh, it's a similar torp- sort of setup. If you, if you have a family member who is in the hospital, you have to provide for them. So there's like a little campground right there on the hospital compound, and people live there, family members will live there, they'll prepare food, take it in to their, their father or their brother or their child who's in the hospital and take care of them. And so a similar sort of thing would have been the case for Paul. And the church in Philippi was trying to meet many of his needs. 1,200-mile journey from Philippi to Rome. So if you're just making modest progress walking, it's going to take you a month, probably more like two months, to accomplish that journey. So this is a, this is a tremendous demonstration of their love for the Apostle Paul. I mean, you're not just Venmoing over some cash, right, or dropping it in the mail. You, you, you have to take it there physically, a huge investment on the part of this church. Uh, we're told in other places that the churches in Macedonia were not wealthy. Philippi was probably the exception because it was a larger center of commerce, but the churches in this region were just known for their generosity. And Paul makes it clear in his, in his letter here that this was not the first gift that they had given to him. A matter of fact, before any other churches were supporting him financially, this church was. So they just had a strong reputation for generosity. In response to their monetary gift, Paul wrote Philippians as a thank you note to the church. So uh, that's really w- at least the primary reason why Paul wrote this letter. In a lot of the letters we've looked at, Paul is confronting certain things. He has concerns, there's problems, and he is wanting to address them. But Philippians overall is, uh, is just laced with gratitude. And again, that this theme of joy really comes through. Paul identifies four specific individuals in the text. Epaphroditus, the messenger... Uh, Yodia and Syntyche and Clement. So there is a a very personal uh, aspect to the letter. By the way, some good names there for those of you who are expecting. Epaphroditus, Yodia, Syntyche, maybe not so much. But Epaphroditus, that's a really good name. It's just hanging, that's this low-hanging fruit right here for 
a name. I hope you, you pick up on this over these first few weeks of looking at Paul's letters, uh, the importance of unity and why it's such a critical issue in the church. I mean, nearly every letter Paul writes, one of the primary themes is unity. In Romans, he talks a lot about Jew-Gentile relationships and tensions. In Corinthians, it's all, he's totally confronting their selfishness. He's urging them to think we over me, right? Uh, Ephesus, same thing. He, He says, you've been adopted into the family of God. Now I want you to live like brothers and sisters in God's family. Uh, And here in Philippi, Paul does also deal with the theme of unity. And apparently there was some disunity uh, in the church that he did want to address. So this is a huge, a huge theme, a huge challenge for the church. It's one of the primary marks of God's people is our love for one another. So this is sort of the backdrop. Uh, Again, I want to spend the time we have together this morning just looking again at the theme, the thread of joy that runs through this book. Uh, Paul uses the word for joy or rejoice 15 times in the letter. There's also a lot of other language, too, that contributes to this theme. But just the technical word, the root word, is used 15 times. I like this definition of joy. Joy is not so much a feeling as it is a settled state of mind characterized by peace. So joy is not simply euphoria uh, or pleasure, but it is this settled reality. In other words, you can experience joy even when you're not happy. You can experience joy in the midst of of hardship. You can have an abiding sense of peace and confidence and hope uh, uh, regardless of your circumstances. So uh, this is what Paul is talking about here in the text. Paul presents the Christian life as a life of joy and he does not he does not cover up the challenges. He's very open about the suffering that he was experiencing and that this church was experiencing. But he was helping them to understand that there was an abiding joy to be had in following Christ. I mentioned that joy has been a bit elusive in our culture. Uh, it's, it's something people are pursuing. They're pursuing joy and satisfaction and fulfillment I think one of the things we realize when we look at Philippians is that joy is not something that we pursue and strive after and obtain. Joy is a byproduct of obedience. It's a byproduct of following Jesus. It's a byproduct of serving God. And so I think sometimes the more we look for it in our secular culture, uh, the, 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 the less we find it. Um, I don't like running. Unlike the Reynolds family, I don't like running. But I do like the feeling that comes after I've gotten good exercise. Okay? A brisk walk or a run or whatever it might be. There, 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 is a, there is a payoff for that. And you don't get that any other way. You don't get that feeling by sitting on the couch and eating another bag of potato chips. Right? So in that sense, I like running because I know what it produces 
all right, in terms of my health. And I think joy is in a similar sort of way. Joy isn't something that we just try to lay claim to. It's, it's something that comes as a result or a byproduct of following Christ. So uh, we're gonna, I want to I point out to you five areas in which we should find joy. Uh, I'm calling it the path to joy. And every one of them is counterintuitive. <laughs> in other words, it doesn't seem like that is going to produce joy. <laughs> but Paul is going to demonstrate that it does, right? So uh, five of them will move quickly. We should find joy in gospel partnership. Uh, I've used the word partnership, but we're talking about relationships, right, within the family of God. Paul found great joy in his relationship with these believers in Philippi. Philippians 1, verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So whenever he prayed for these believers, it brought him joy. They had joined him in the work of the gospel. He uses this partnership terminology. They were committed to one another. They had been through uh, good times and bad times. And the relationship had been formed over the course of many years. That's how real relationships form, right? They don't happen overnight. They take a lot of investment. And uh, sometimes a lot of heartache, right? You have to extend forgiveness. You have to work through hurt feelings. Uh, it takes effort. But there's a, if you're willing to make the investment in relationships, there is a payoff of joy, right? By the way, Paul speaks consistently with this language of partnership here in his letter. Um, gospel partnership. These people were part of his ministry. They were laboring together in the work of the gospel. And I think that's a really helpful uh, framework uh, for us to, to, uh, to, to think about our role in the Great Commission. I don't know if you think about it that way, that you have a significant role in the advancement of the gospel around the world. Uh, Paul's out there seemingly doing the heavy lifting, right? He's the one that's out there actually praying uh, or, or, or preaching and going into these unexplored territories and and yet he refers to these people in the church of Philippi as his partners in the gospel. Um, we ought to think of ourselves in a similar way. As we think about our relationship with our missionaries, the investment that we make financially in terms of prayer, we play a vital role. Don't underestimate that. But Paul uh, points out here that we should find joy in gospel partnership. He models that for us. Number two, we should find joy in suffering for Christ. I told you these are going to be countercultural, counterintuitive, right? We don't generally think of suffering as a pathway to joy. Uh, and it certainly doesn't mean that we ought to pursue suffering. We ought not to take some morbid pleasure in pain. But Paul is helping them to see how even in suffering we can experience joy, particularly as it relates to suffering for Christ. 
chapter 1, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What had happened to Paul? He had been put in prison, right? I want, but I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The sense is that these believers in Philippi were feeling bad for Paul. Maybe they sent him a note of condolence when they sent the monetary gift with Epaphras. We are so sorry, Paul. This did not turn out at all how you had hoped. You were hoping to arrive in Rome, the center of the the, the known world where you could proclaim the gospel and you, you get to Rome finally, but now you're in prison and you, you, your movement is restricted. You can't preach. Oh, what a disaster, Paul. I'm so sorry. Uh, Paul was having none of the, the self-pity, right? He says, no, actually, my imprisonment has uniquely advanced the gospel. And he cites two different ways in which that was the case. First of all, it put him in contact with prison guards in the palace. He had access to Caesar's household. As a matter of fact, he says at the end of the letter, as he's passing along some final greetings, he says, uh, the brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. Uh, All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. How in the world did Caesar's household come to be exposed to the gospel? Uh, It was through Paul's imprisonment. Right? He, he ended up with a back door into the palace. He ended up on the radar screen there in Rome in a unique way. He also says that because of his imprisonment, others had been inspired to declare the gospel. So other people saw what Paul was suffering, and they're like, wow, man, I better step up. <laughs> Paul, Paul's, Paul's not able to preach, and, and we've all been given the task of sharing the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, and others began to pick up the baton And this was a really good thing. And so Paul reflects on all that God had been doing. Uh, There was a, uh, back in the the 50s, we had five missionary uh, families that went down to the Alca Indians, right, in Ecuador. And they were killed by these tribesmen. And I mean, this is Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and that whole group, uh, boy, what a loss for the gospel, right? What a, what a heartache for the gospel. These were trained, passionate people. But what happened was a whole new generation of people were inspired to take the gospel to the world. And God used what was a tragic circumstance to spur people on for gospel service. And so Paul recites these, these things. So, uh, We should find joy in suffering when we're facing restriction, like Paul was in in prison. Maybe for you it's a physical ailment that you think, man, this is really holding. If I just didn't have to struggle with this, I could serve the Lord more faithfully, more fully. Uh, It's hard for us sometimes to find joy in our restrictions. Uh, But also uh, finding joy when we face rivalry. Notice what else was happening here in Paul's world, verse 15 of chapter 1, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, 
supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So Paul says, my, my being in prison has actually made other people more bold to, to speak the gospel. And he said, not all of them are doing it out of good motivation. Some of them are trying to take advantage of the fact that I'm restricted. They're trying to gain a name for themselves. They're, they're pursuing greed and notoriety. Uh, they might not be doing it for the right reasons, but they're doing it. And because the gospel is being preached, I rejoice. This isn't about my advancement. This is about the advancement of the gospel. So Paul helps them again. Think about how we can experience joy even when people are out to get us, right? When people are mean-spirited, when they're malicious, when they're trying to act for our demise. We can still celebrate the advance of the gospel. We can also find joy in suffering even when we're facing death. This was very much on the table for Paul, right? He's in prison in Rome. Chapter 1, verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul's in a Roman prison. He hopes to be released, but he is very aware that his imprisonment might end in death, which it did. And notice his perspective. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. We usually think of it the other way, right? To live is gain. Like, it would be better to keep living, but if I'm going to die, then at least I'll go to be with, with Christ Paul says, no, actually, to die is gain, like, especially from where Paul was sitting, that would have been a much better way to go. (laughs) Let's just skip the beheading and go straight to heaven, right? So uh, that that could have been how Paul viewed that. That would have been gain for him to, to, to step out of his suffering. But to remain alive was service for Christ, right? So again, Paul's helping, to, helping them to find joy even in the midst of their suffering. Uh, they weren't, Paul wasn't the only one who was suffering. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. So again, these believers in Philippi were also experiencing suffering and opposition. There were enemies who were out for them. And Paul is wanting to shape their worldview. Yes, what they were involved in was very difficult Uh, painful at times, but they were involved in something with eternal consequence. And he wants them to to keep an eye on what is happening in terms of gospel advance, even in their suffering. 
We should also find joy in humble service. We should also find joy in humble service. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ and any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Again, counterintuitive, isn't it? We think if I'm going to be, find joy, I, I'm going to have to go, go take it. <laughs> I'm going to have to look out for myself. I'm going to have to get to my happy place. I'm going to have to enjoy the recreation that I like, that makes me fulfilled. Paul lays out a very different pathway to joy. That we experience joy in service, not by looking to meet our own needs, but by looking to meet the needs of others. And he puts forward as the example Christ himself and urges them to have the mindset of Christ. It says in verse 5 here, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So a beautiful section on Christ's deity, being having equality with God, also an emphasis on his humanity, that he humbled himself, uh, taking on human flesh and being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. But Paul is not just emphasizing Jesus' suffering here, his humble service. He also goes on to talk about Christ's exaltation. This is how the section ends, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So we don't just follow Jesus in the crucifixion, we also follow him in his resurrection and in his ascension. This is all part of the pattern of Christ, who humbled himself and served and and. Uh, loved others sacrificially and selflessly, became a doormat, we might say, right? I mean, he, he was willing to, be, to, to, to suffer uh, great lengths for them. But wait for it, <laughs> right? But he was therefore exalted. He was honored. We think when we serve, we just, I mean, we get tired, you know, in service, and we notice who others who aren't serving, and it makes us mad and frustrated and discontent in our own service, and we just get weary, right? And Paul's saying, no, listen, keep the big picture perspective. Serving others doesn't maybe seem like the path to joy, but it is. Maintain the mindset of Christ as you serve. Paul says that This is really going to be what makes them distinct. 
Chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So he says, uh, don't, don't get into a trap of negativity, of grumbling, of complaining, of division. Uh, he urges them again towards unity and selfless service and says this is going to allow you to, to stand out like stars in the dark night sky. And then he actually identifies two individuals that he feels like model this selfless service. So he gave the example of Christ, and then he highlights Timothy and Epaphroditus, the messenger. And he says about Timothy, he says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests. So he said, Timothy is, uh, is a guy that loves you deeply, and he's not looking out for himself. And of course, you know Epaphroditus' story. He traveled all this distance. He actually, Epaphroditus, became very sick in that journey. And he almost died, uh, all in service to Paul, right? And, and, and so Paul just says, here's a couple of guys. These are the types of people you need to honor. This is, th- these people get it. <laughs> this is the pathway to joy and fulfillment. It's not an easy path. Serving others is not easy. But it's a path of great joy. We should find joy in the grace of the gospel. We should find joy in the grace of the gospel. Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul urges them to rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy and your confidence in what has been accomplished through the work of Christ on the cross. And apparently many were trying to sort of drag these believers back into uh, the, the gerbil wheel of human accomplishments, right? These were the Judaizers. Uh, people who were telling them they had to observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. And Paul says, don't don't get caught back up in that again. Uh, You have Christ. Rejoice in what you have in the Lord. Paul says, I could play that game of human accomplishment, right? He says, I mean, he goes through to list all of his accomplishments and his ethnic identity as as a Jewish person and an observant Jewish man. And he goes through, he says, but I count all that as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Uh, Those things, trying to to earn uh, acceptance with God and just trying to do and do and do is a recipe for discouragement and depression. Uh, You have received an unimaginable gift through Christ. He urges them to stand firm. Beware of the joy killers. Beware of those who might try to rob them of their joy and to stand firm in the Lord, in the gospel. Um, He actually, uh, there in chapter 4, he 
identifies Yodia and Syntyche, a couple of the women in the church who were apparently having trouble getting along. Can you imagine getting called out in a public letter, right? Awkward as the letter is being read, right? But he urges them to surrender whatever petty grievances they were holding on to and to agree in the Lord. If we find our identity and our accomplishments, then we can tend to feel superior to others. (laughs) We can feel frustrated with their sins against us. But if we understand that all that we are is in Christ, we are sinners, forgiven, washed clean by the blood of Christ, we find our unity in the Lord, in the cross, Paul urges them to stand firm there. He provides an antidote for anxiety. This is the passage that Brittany read for us today. Paul calls on these believers to rejoice in the Lord. He actually says it twice. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is a choice. It's not just a feeling. It is a decision that we make to find joy. Our missionary Dan Cook took this as one of his themes through his wife's cancer journey and her subsequent death. And as you can imagine, it wasn't easy. didn't come naturally, but he determined to choose joy. That flows right out of this, of this passage. And one of the things that Paul hits on in this passage, in chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, is, is what we think about. He's urging them to give consideration to what they put in their minds. Now, some depression, anxiety is clinical. Uh, We need help, right? And and God can use medications and doctors to help us in that. But a lot of our depression is self-inflicted. A lot of it is because we're filling our minds with things that aren't true, that aren't directing our thoughts towards our hope in Christ, And so he goes through this whole section here. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is noble, think on these things. So some of you need to get off Facebook because it's making you mad. It's feeding your angst, right? Some of you need to stop watching the news. You need to maybe change up your playlist or whatever podcast you're listening to. Maybe you need to start reading your Bible and connecting with a group of Christian friends, right? There are certain things that we can take control of to choose joy. Paul outlines a very practical section there in chapter 4. And then finally, we should find joy in giving. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, Paul thanked them for their gift. But it's very interesting, if you look at that section, Paul didn't dwell on the benefit he received from the gift. He focused on the benefit they received from giving the gift. Uh, It was an investment, and they would experience a return on their investment. So again, we tend to think, I don't necessarily experience joy by giving away what I possess. We tend to think I, I experience joy by possessing more things right it's counterintuitive but we actually experience joy when we engage in giving 
So Paul outlines here the path to joy. And it's not what we would think. It's not necessarily an immediate payoff. But these choices to serve, to engage in friendships and partnerships in the gospel, to give, these things all lead us on the path to joy. There was a great scene in Acts 16 when the church was established here in Philippi. Uh, Paul and Silas were arrested, placed in jail. Uh, We are told that it was midnight and they were singing in the jail. Caught the attention of the jailer and their fellow prisoners. Uh, That just doesn't make any sense, right? How can you be imprisoned and singing? Uh, Even there, we see this joy that transcends our circumstances. Praying that God would renew our joy. Uh, It's not just the culture that struggles with a lack of joy. Sometimes it's true in the church as well. And I tend on the grumpy side of the continuum. Okay, So I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, We need to cultivate a spirit of joy that is not contingent on our circumstances.